Thank you, Morgan. <clears throat> Thank you, worship team. Hey, it is good to be here with you this morning. Good morning, Trinity Church. Thank you. I was a little concerned there for a second, but... <laughs> hey, you know, over the past 12 weeks, haven't we had some wonderful speakers? Yeah, praise God. <clears throat> I'm just very thankful to our Father who knows our need and has sent men here to uh, teach us and encourage us and strengthen us. And I'm very thankful to our elder board, Todd Arnett, worked with them to get this whole process started, Rick Langer, of course, and Biola University. And uh, we just have a lot to be thankful for this morning. My name is Doug Baker. And I'm going to be your uh, interim lead pastor uh, during this transition. <clears throat> Thank you. I appreciate that warm welcome. Um, some of you have asked, uh, what does this transition look like? I mean, what's going to be happening? What can we be experiencing and thinking about and preparing for? And, and I just want to remind us this morning, it's a very simple process when we transition it's a journey with Jesus. That's really what it is. It's a time when we follow in his footsteps, we listen to what he has to say to us, and, uh, and we seek to serve and be obedient in the process of going from point A to point F, you know, whatever that might be. And so I'm, I'm just really thankful uh, to be able to be a, a part of this. And, and it's important that we remind ourselves that we are not uh, pulling off into a pit stop to rest. Uh, we are not... Um, idling our ministry engines, waiting for God to move. Uh, he is going to and already is working with us. And we're not in this holding pattern, uh, you know, like at an airport, waiting to take off. Uh, God is doing great things already here. And in uh, a transition like this, our spiritual compass really needs to be reset. Uh, from all of the, the fragmented points of the compass that we might normally look at and think about, they need to be reset uh, back to the one who created time and defined space and crafted life, because he's really the only one who knows where we're going to be and what we're going to look like down the, uh, the road. So my job as the interim lead pastor is really three things. It's very simple, and we're going to throw these up on the screen for you. And if you have your notes this morning, you can also write them down. They're very, very simple and direct. My job, first of all, is to encourage us with all the things God is already doing here at Trinity. When we go through a transition, whether it be personal or corporate or family or church, the tendency is to look at the things that are not right. And I think God wants us to look at the things that are right. And gosh, we have so many good things going on. I just, I looked at the church calendar, which by the way, was a little overwhelming for me. Good night, we do a lot of wonderful things. And we've already heard about... Uh, the kids camp, monumental, uh, 185 kids came. And think about this. That's 185 souls and their families who heard about Jesus Christ and learned about the word of God and, and had a lot of seeds planted in their lives. And 200 of you involved yourself in that kids camp. I've never seen, we used to call them VBSs. Some of you remember that old phrase, vacation Bible school. I've never seen one with more volunteers than kids. <laughs> it's amazing what God is already doing here. And that was from middle school on up. Middle schoolers were doing a little VBS with uh, the child care. 
We have refresh going on, and ladies, I hope you can be a part of that. It is so important to slow the pace down and spend time with Jesus, and this is a perfectly crafted time to do that. Um, and we have a lot of physical plant changes that are coming up. You've heard about the fact we're re repaving the parking lot. Uh, can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, both of them, all of them. Uh, we have got new gazebos going up out in the uh, pavilion area. Uh, one is already up. Five more are coming, so if you've been looking for some shade here at Trinity, you'll soon find it. Um, and a lot of other good things. Secondly, my job is to help renew us, and this is to work with the elder board and ministry directors and pastors and staff uh, to uh, remind us um, that there are things we can do better, always. When you think about our bodies, it's a good example of a church. We're a church body, but when you think about the physical body, did you realize that your stomach cells renew themselves every two days? And if you eat salsa and chips, it's every one day? <laughs> your white blood cells, they last just a couple days to a week. Your skin cells are regenerated every two weeks. Um, and red blood cells, about every four months. But get this. Your fat cells, the ones that are ice cream craving and cheese loving, they renew themselves every 10 years. <laughs> How can that be fair? Right? But, but our bodies renew themselves. And isn't it a beautiful picture that God gave us of how the church needs to be renewed from time to time? And I think this transition is a great opportunity for us to do this as a church, to develop new habits of purity, for us to uh, develop fresh attitudes of holiness, uh, for us to renew our hearts in love and service to God. This is a great time to do that together. Thirdly, uh, my job is to inspire us. And really, this is what God needs to do among us. It's the things that God yet wants to do with our church. Uh, I don't think it's any secret that God never stops creating things. And I want you to pause and, and, and consider Romans 4 for a minute. We're not in that passage this morning, but Romans 4, when it talks about the faith of Abraham, it says that he believed in a God who causes those things that do not exist to exist. Think about that for a minute. Our Creator God looks at our lives individually. He looks at our life as a church. And the things that we feel are lacking or absent, He says, well, don't worry about that. Because I'm the God who creates that which does not exist, and I bring it into existence. So when we think about the life of our church and what God wants to do, it's kind of like a, a chef sampling the, um, the chocolate raspberry frosting he's putting on a wedding cake. And that finger-licking taste is just a little bit of what is yet to come. And I think what God is doing at, at Trinity, what he has done at Trinity, and what he will do at Trinity is going to be so exciting for us. In fact, next week, we're starting a, uh, a series, a sermon series uh, in 2 Corinthians called A Transforming Journey. And those of you who have read 2 Corinthians know that Paul is writing to a church that's uh, in transition, that is struggling with a lot of issues. And he says to them time and again, week after week, folks, God is going to take your weaknesses and he's going to convert them into his power. It is when we are weak that we are strong, he writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're going to take this series all the way through 2 Corinthians. It's going to take us all the way up to Thanksgiving. And we're going to talk about how does God transform us in the journey with Jesus. Today, however, I want to start us with a story about a new beginning. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do. 
Would you open them to Ezra chapter 3? Now, Ezra is after the, the Kings and the Chronicles, and it's a little bit before Psalms. But in Ezra chapter 3, we have this amazing story of the Jews coming out of captivity, and they are starting over. They are rebooting. They are transitioning, much like we're doing here at Trinity as we look forward to the future. The scribe Ezra, in his book, recounts the moment when the Jewish people arrived back in, um, in Jerusalem, and they've had some pretty tough times. They've had 70 years of captivity. From the point the temple was destroyed to the time when they got back and began to rebuild, it was 70 years. And so they're coming out of this, this period of time where, uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, their hard scrabble days are over. You know, as far as they know, the scent of slavery and, and the, uh, the sounds of captivity are all behind them. And this is their chance for a new beginning. And that renewed freedom beckons to them from down the road. So Ezra 3 records for us when they finally get to Jerusalem, they're eager to get that ball rolling and find that fresh start. But when they arrive in Jerusalem, what they find is not encouraging. What they find is that their former homes, their community, their country has been grievously laid to waste. The temple's in ruins. The land has been ravaged. And, uh, and all of the things that they remember are gone. Their homes, their fields, they're overrun with weeds and graves. And so they arrive there, much like the dwarves, traveling to the mines of Moria in the, in the Lord of the Rings. And they enter the mines and they find it's really just a tomb. It's a lot like Ukrainians who are moving back to Kiev and to Buka after they've been bombed. And they arrive in town and everything has been just completely decimated. So they arrive back for this new beginning and it creates a lot of concerns for them. Ezra chapter 3, look at verse 3 because I want you to feel the emotions that they felt. Their new setting was, well, unsettling. Ezra 3.3 says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Their hearts were filled with fear because of the surrounding neighbors. Verse 12 tells us that they wept as they began this uh, reintroduction to the land. It says in, in verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. They felt this was a very bad new beginning. And I think when we think about transitions, it's really good for us and important for us to think about how do we feel about this transition? What are our emotions? For some of us, they, there may be fear, fear of opposition or um, fear of uh, confrontation, whether it be from in the community or within, fear of making changes, uh, fear of wrong decisions, fear of not having sufficient resources, uh, fear of what others in our community may think about us or um, may talk about us, uh, that we are not what we once were. And there's also times of sadness, sadness over what has been lost, sadness over what uh, we had but may never see again, a sadness for uh, the present. It's not what we hoped for. 
maybe even a sadness uh, that change isn't producing what we want. But thankfully, these people refused to remain in fear and sadness, and they chose to do three things, and that's what I want to focus on, us on this morning. So they intentionally made an effort to engage in three activities. What are these things? Because I think as we look at them, we can adopt them here at Trinity in our new beginning, and we can begin to say to ourselves, there is something we can do as we walk with Jesus. So number one, you'll see it up on the screen, it's in your notes, they got together. They got together in unity. Look at verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They needed to be together because as they looked around at the people who surrounded Jerusalem, they were hostile to their way of faith, to their identity as God's chosen people, to uh, their way of life. And you notice uh, on the screen here, you'll see a slide of what it looked like from a 30,000-foot look or level. You see Jerusalem is, is circled there, and in Ezra and Nehemiah, you find these names repeatedly. You have Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Geshem the shepherd, and then those living in Ashdod. Literally, the people of Israel were surrounded by hostile tribes and nations. Every one of those individual tribes and nations repeatedly sought to um, destroy the work that God was doing in Jerusalem through Ezra and the other leaders. They knew they needed to be together, to be together, to hang together, because if they didn't, they would succumb to their fears and possibly even to the cultures of the world around them. I think we would all agree that today in America, we face a significant cultural challenge. Gone are the days when uh, Christianity was openly welcomed at universities and at Christmas parades and a variety of other settings when we could talk openly about our faith and find an open dialogue, when we could pray at school Gosh, those days are way gone, right? So many of the things about our culture have changed, and there are these pressures around us that say to us, we need to be together. We need to have time together. Not surprisingly, God talks about this in his word, the importance of actually physically being together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, teach us this. And what they have to say is, therefore... Brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us do three things. Uh, some theologians, by the way, call this the let us salad of the New Testament. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us draw near to the throne of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith and our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And look at this last third one. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why are Christians to gather together today? Why are we to be at church regularly? Why are we to be connected with small groups? And why is community, Christian community, so vital for us? Well, he gives us two reasons here. 
and you might write this in your notes. Number one, verse 19, we have a new and a living way to approach God through Jesus' blood. This is remarkable. It's unexpected. It is inviting. You and I are welcome to come before the living, holy creator God and be in his presence. Read this week that journalists are having a hard time getting into the White House press conferences. We don't have that problem with God. He invites us into his majesty through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's number one. And secondly, and related to it, is this idea in verse 21. We have a new high priest, Jesus Christ, who presents his perfection and his purity to God and says this belongs to them. They have the right to come into your presence because of what I did at the cross. So as he tells us this, he says, because these are true, let's do these things. Let's draw near to God, knowing he welcomes us. Let's hold fast our hope, knowing that he is faithful in his promises. And let us meet together, not neglecting it, but stirring each other up. Any of you like to bake? My wife and daughter love it. A lot of times I come into the kitchen and they're stirring by hand or using that big mixer and things are getting all mixed together. God says we are to come and stir each other up to love and good deeds as we spend time together. And and I'll tell you, folks, I think one of the challenges for us today is COVID. COVID has made this difficult for us. Would you agree with that? It's made it hard for us to gather and to be together. And I'm so glad that we're seeing this on its way out. It's not completely gone. But even worse, I think, than COVID has been the habit that it encourages us to stay away from each other. Um, I I know that is true because Lisa and I served as lead pastors for 33 years in two different churches, and guess what? I had to be at church every Sunday, except for vacation times. And I just got in the rhythm and the routine of you're getting up early, you do your sermon uh, review, you get to church, you're there for a good number of hours, and then you go home. There was never an option of staying in bed saying, I don't feel like it today. And then we retired from the pastorate and started our nonprofit, Living My Potential, and I now had a choice. My goodness, it was suddenly like, Doug, you don't really have to go to church today. I mean, there's somebody else speaking. Well, there used to be somebody else speaking. (laughs) I'm back at it. My wife used to do the coffee ministry at church, and now we come, and there's coffee already made for us. And it was always a question at our churches of whether people were coming for the coffee or the message, and we didn't really argue about that a whole lot, but we didn't have to come suddenly. And it was like the old idols in our heart that Dr. Kim talked about last week. Suddenly grabbed their tin cups, and they were running them along the prison wall, prison uh, bars of our hearts saying, let us out, let us out, you don't have to go to church. And God had to remind us because we're flesh. And we feel those feelings of, I just want to sleep in this morning, or gosh, there's something else going on I'd rather do, or, you know, it's time to play with the grandkids, or I haven't had a good cup of coffee on the patio for months and years. And God brought back to our minds Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It's like, oh, please, the conviction. (laughs) Really? Yes. Because being together is vital to our faith. We we don't really have an option on this. It's something that produces in us 
a change, a dynamic spiritual change of being together. One of the things I've loved, by the way, Morgan, where are you? Right here? I love how she leads us in acapella worship. Any of you feel the same way? When suddenly it's just the voices. And we did it again this morning, we did it last week, and every time that happens, I sit here and I can feel the vibrations of your voices. Just that tonal uh, quality and hearing God's people worship together. Now, I want you to notice in the passage, they came together and it describes them as one man. As one man. What does that mean? Well, have you ever planned a birthday party for a child, a five-year-old, or maybe a 16-year-old or 21-year-old? You know, it's a significant moment in this person's life. Or you've planned an anniversary for the 30th anniversary or the 60th anniversary, and you send out the Evites. You ever done that? And you've made a huge list of who you want to come. And, uh, and of course, on an Evite, you have choices, right? What are the choices down at the bottom? Yes, no, or that dreaded maybe. I don't know. I might come. I might not. But you send it out, and your hope is that everybody would come who's on the list, and they would be there for that AFV moment when they walk in the door and everybody yells, surprise, and they step back and have a near-fatal heart attack. You hope that there will be everyone there gathered as one because of what it does for the unity of that gathering, the celebration of that individual, the approval of all the hard work that went into it. You just wish that everybody could be there. And amazingly, all of these Jewish people, 70,000 who had come back out of captivity, gather as one man to be together. That should cause us to sit up and take notice. So number one, they got together. Number two, they got back to basics. Look at verses two through four. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar, the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, and they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Folks, when we're afraid of something, what do we normally do? Well, we talk about fight or flight, but I think what we normally do is we build walls to protect us. And here you have these Jewish people, freshly back in the land, surrounded by hostile individuals who are actively working to destroy them. And it's amazing to me they didn't build the walls. Of course, that's Nehemiah's story, right? But why would they not have begun to rebuild the walls to protect them in this moment? It says instead they built something else. They built the altar of God. An altar. Now, if any of you have ever done construction, and I've done it over the years, I was in construction in high school and have done stuff since then, when you're building something, what's the very first thing you do besides drawing permits and paying all the fees? You build a foundation, exactly right. And then you begin to build the walls, the superstructure, so that you begin to see some definition. You begin to see the living room, and you begin to see the garage, and there's bedrooms and, and bathrooms all framed up. But they didn't do that. If they had been building a home, what they would have built first was the kitchen. 
Can you imagine a dirt lot? No foundation, no walls, but there's the kitchen. Now, some of you as wives might be saying, absolutely. Because that's where the life of the family happens, right? It's in the kitchen. This is what was true for them spiritually. They didn't build the foundation. That's later in the text. They didn't build the walls. What they built was the altar of God because that is where the life of God's people happens. So you have to picture this dirt part of Jerusalem where the temple used to be. It was dismantled, absolutely. And there on that dirt, they have built an altar. This was the place where they could experience God's presence. This was the place where they could renew their identity as God's people. This is the place where they could find forgiveness and cleansing for their souls through these offerings and sacrifices. This is the place where they could ask God's protection and provision and guidance, peace and courage and wellness and joy. It was where they experienced life as God's people. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators, says briefly, the threatening situation had brought home to them their need of help. And therefore, of that access to God, which was promised at the altar, as Exodus 29, 43 says, there at the altar, I will meet with the people of Israel. Has Trinity had any challenges in the past years? Yeah, we have, haven't we? Like them, we've had some tough times. Have you ever felt afraid of, of conflict or had a concern over the opinions of others? Have we ever had sadness creep into our hearts because we've reflected on the past and how it's very different today from what our experience has been in the size of our church or the attendance of our church or our church leaders or the church glory and, and ministries of the past? Is unity something we need more as God's people here at Trinity? And if it is, we need to get back to the basics. We need to rebuild the altar of God in our hearts and minds where we can be identified and cleansed and empowered by his greatness and glory. To help with this, I would like to invite all of us in the weeks to come to increase our time at the altar of God in prayer. Whether it's individually as a person at home, whether it's as a family around a table, whether it's at night before you go to sleep, or maybe even it's here at the church with all of the opportunities for prayer. Jay and Judy Zercher, right over here. Can you raise your hands? I think most everybody knows you. I just got to know them. Have a prayer meeting before this service. At 8.15, just for a half an hour, they spend time praying for this church and its next lead pastor and all the ministries and all of you. And the great thing is, they said, we'd love more people to come. So next Sunday, they're going to be right out here at the pavilion lawn. 8.15, there's banners out there this morning so you can see where they're going to be. You've also received a handout, hopefully, uh, from their ministry that says, here's some common questions and answers about prayer. Here's what we're actually praying every week for the church, for the next lead pastor. And may I suggest, if you have a family, because I remember raising my family when my kids were small and the challenges of getting them up and getting them dressed and having breakfast and all of the interaction and conversations that can happen. 
It's not easy getting to church on time, even as a pastor. But let me encourage you, if you have a family, couples, this is easy to do. Singles, it's easy to do. But as a family, bring them a little bit early. You can drop them off at uh, the, the kids' Sunday school, but come a little bit early and just sit on the lawn with a blanket and let them listen to a prayer meeting so they can learn what it means to, st- to sit at the altar of God. And after a minute, if they're kind of looking around like, we're done, right? Or maybe your husband is looking around going, I'm done. Or your wife the same. Get up and go on with whatever else you're going to do. Go by the, the coffee shop, pick up some coffee, relax a little bit. But I think if we as a church can increase our time in prayer with all of the opportunities that we're given, we are coming to the altar of God where we are going to find the life of God. Uh, At the bottom of your handout, you'll also notice if you want to be a part of the prayer ministry, you want to be a person who is actively pursuing God at his altar. Uh, There's a phone number, a name there, you can uh, email, you can reach out to, and they would be happy to have you do that. They got together. They got back to the basics. And thirdly, they got engaged in worship. And I want you to notice this worship was powerful, but it also had varying perspectives. Now, over the years as a pastor, I've been in many hospital rooms where there has been a newborn. And I get the privilege of going in, because pastors get in just about anywhere. We've got a pastor card. And you just show it to a nurse, oh, yeah, yeah, come on in, come on. And so I've been in many rooms where the newborn, you know, is obviously she's in uh, the room, mom is in the room with the baby. And it's amazing to me that I have never heard a mom say, is this a good-looking kid? They always think that child is gorgeous, whether he's still purple and has the cheesy stuff on him, and the head is misshapen from coming through the birth canal. It's like, look at this handsome kid! They always think their kid is the most beautiful or handsome kid in the entire world. And these Jewish people with this new altar thought the same thing. They thought, gosh, we have got something really exciting here. This worship is going to be epic. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be big. And they built the foundation. I want you to notice what they did as they had these thoughts about greatness. Look at verses 4 through 6. This uh, should be on your notes. It'll be up on the screen. Number one, they followed the law of Moses regarding the temple activities. They wanted to do this right. It says in verse 4, And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the month, seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they followed the law of Moses. We want to get this done correctly. Verse 7 tells us they ordered materials for the temple. And interestingly, it's from the exact same place that Solomon ordered his materials. They didn't go to one store. They went to the other store. They didn't go to Lowe's. They went to Home Depot or vice versa, wherever you choose to go. They went to the same place. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenter and food, drink, and oil, to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant they had had from Cyrus, king of Persia. They began its construction the same month 
that Solomon's temple had begun. They waited until the exact moment when Solomon had started his temple according to the law of Moses, using the same materials, they also began. It says in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And lastly, verses 9 through 11, they followed the exact specifications King David had given his son Solomon. Do you get the feeling they wanted this done right? They wanted it done on the same level, same materials, same blessing from God. They wanted what they had had before. And when the foundation is finally laid, they are enthusiastic. Look at verses 11 and 12. Some of them are shouting with joy. Others are weeping and mourning. It says, but many of the priests and Levites, heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What is going on here? We've got those who had been born in Jerusalem, the old guys. They wore the hat, old men rule, you know, kind of thing. They had been taken into captivity. They had somehow survived the captivity of the Babylonian Empire. They're coming back in their 80s. Maybe they were 10 when they left. They're coming back in their 80s. Maybe some were even 90s. And they're standing before this foundation, and they're looking at it. And they're going, gosh, that is so small. That's not like what we had at all. I mean, look at it. It's not even the, the same overall dimension. I, I remember the rooms that were over here and here, and they're not going to fit. This isn't going to work. And they began to weep from perspective that it just wasn't what they had hoped. And then you had the young kids who were born in captivity. Some of them are 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s. They had never even seen an altar to God. They had never even been at a temple of Yahweh. And they're looking at it going, woohoo! this is great. Look at this thing. It's a foundation for a temple, and we got the altar, and it's going to be wonderful. And they were all weeping and joyfully shouting so loud, all the neighbors could hear. You ever lived next to a person with a party like that? And you're thinking, gosh, how long is that going to go on? They were excited. But please notice, their worship was enthusiastic, it was powerful, but it had varying perspectives. And folks, there are people among us who have seen the glory days of Trinity. People have been here a long time, and they've seen the ministries, and they've heard the preaching, and they've been engaged in all kinds of wonderful activities. And we need you, if that's you. Because you bring a breadth of experience and wisdom and seeing how God does things in magnificent ways that others among us aren't going to have that background. We're, they're not going to have that experience and that perspective. We need that. There are others among you who are newer to Trinity. 
when Lisa and I arrived, we thought, man, this is fantastic. We're meeting wonderful people, and look at the ministries, and the worship's great, and we're enjoying the teaching, and we don't have that history. And there are some among you who don't have that history as well, and we need you because you bring a fresh vitality and a vigor and a perspective that is brand new. And those are going to merge into such a loud shout to our community that they will say, there is something good going on at Trinity. And I want to be a part of that. That is the way God does things. He, he works through his people. But both of those are needed. And folks, honestly, neither one of them is right or wrong. There is no way it should be other than us coming to the altar of God together. That is what makes the unity of a church. Now God wanted to make sure this was clear. So two of the Old Testament prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, you guys know where those are in the Bible? They're right toward the end, right? They were actually preaching in this environment. So Haggai and Zechariah are preaching to these people. And you'll notice up on the screen what they have to say to them. Haggai says in chapter 2, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Isn't that a good word for the church today? Zechariah echoes that in Zechariah chapter 4. He says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain of opposition, was his intention. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone, the cornerstone, and shouts of grace, grace to you. What is a cornerstone, by the way? Well, we have differing, differing opinions of that. There's a slide we're going to throw up on the screen here. And you'll notice that the one on the left is typically what Americans think of as a cornerstone. Would you agree with that? It's the corner of a building. You oftentimes have etched into it a date and what happened when this building was erected. So when we think of a cornerstone, we go to the one on the left, but that's not what the Hebrews thought. That's what, not what the ancient Near Eastern world thought. What they thought of was that, where you have an arch. And if you've ever seen one of these things in Israel or you've tried to build one, you realize that when you go up, you get to a point, an apex, where you need a stone that is carved exactly to fit. In fact, that top stone there was never cut until they got to that point because it had to be shaped just right. And that stone held everything together, all the weight of the building, the weight of the arch, the entry into the building. It rested on that cornerstone, and that's what the Jews thought of when they thought of a cornerstone. So what's interesting is that Jesus called himself what? I am the cornerstone of the church. You have rejected me as the cornerstone. You see, the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and they said, no, he doesn't fit there. We fit there. But Jesus said, no, I'm the one who holds it all together. I'm the one who bears the weight of the burdens of the building. I am the one through whom you enter into the kingdom of God and all of the blessings and richness of knowing God. I'm that cornerstone. Isn't it fascinating that Zechariah 
states that. And folks, as members of Trinity Church, as attendees of this wonderful church, we should have less of a concern about how things look or what we have or our accompanying ministries. I think we need to be much more concerned that we are gathered in God's presence, trusting Him for His work in our church. And when we do, the sound of what happens here will echo throughout the land. Came across a song this last week by Leanna Crawford. She's a young, very talented country pop Christian singer. And she wrote a song that I think is for you and I this morning. It's called Truth I'm Standing On. And we're going to end our service, the preaching part at least, listening to it. And as you listen to it, may I suggest that we reflect and ask ourselves, are we getting together as one man in this new beginning? Is the altar our focus? Are we getting back to the basics of God's presence rather than all the accompanying things that go with ministry? And are we worshiping God with power and varying perspectives? So men, if you could play the song at this time, listen to the words, and then I will pray and we'll ask Morgan and the team to come back and wrap up our service. Let's listen. Scared Oh, I thought I knew Scared But I'm so filled with fear I can barely move Doubt I've had my share of doubt But never more than right now I'm wondering This is the truth I'm standing on Even when all my strength is gone You are faithful forever And I know you'll never let me fall Right now I'm choosing to believe Someday soon I'll look back and see 
Would you pray with me? Do you know that you are loved by God today? Do you feel his presence day by day, week by week? He is making a way for you. He is the entry point into all that God has designed for us, created for us, crafted for us. And folks, he stands ready to embrace us today. He stands ready to encourage us and to fill us. We don't ever want to pass up an opportunity to invite those of you who are here today, maybe online, out on the pavilion, who have heard of God, but who have never really entrusted yourself to God. And God tells us, having this dynamic, powerful relationship with him, the recompassing of our lives, begins with simply accepting the fact that we need his love and his presence. We are sinners, not only by action, but by nature, every single one of us. We need to accept that. Push aside our independence, our self-centeredness, and say, God, I, I do need you. We need to believe that Jesus alone opens the doorway to God. There is no other way to God except through Christ. He was very clear on that because he is God himself in flesh. And we can do nothing to sponge away our past sins and wrong actions. Jesus alone saves us. And lastly, just choosing. So simple. Choosing to accept God's offered forgiveness for our sins and to enter the door of freedom and new life. If that has not been your experience, you've never possibly even heard that before, that, that having a relationship with God, a personal, living, vibrant relationship with the creator of all things is possible and that it comes through Jesus Christ, he invites you this morning to lay aside yourself, come to Jesus, accept his gift, and be changed. And that is our prayer for you this morning. Father, Help us to come to the altar of God. Help us to seek your presence as Trinity Church and to be real.